long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and in today's interview show, I'm joined by Nick Tumbalides of U.S. Term Limits. I'm Nick Tumbalides. Uh, I run U.S. Term Limits, which is the nation's oldest and largest uh, pro-term limits group. Um, we've been active on this issue since 1992, since the modern term limits movement really got started, really found its uh, momentum. Uh, we were very active in the 1990s and slapping term limits on 15 state legislatures. And we led the effort um, to have states pass uh, amendments to their constitutions or statutes term limiting their congressmen in the 1990s uh, prior to the, the 1995 Supreme Court decision, U.S. Term Limits v. Thornton, uh, which struck down all of those state-imposed term limits laws. Today, uh, the bulk of our effort is working on a constitutional amendment to put term limits on members of Congress. So, uh, Nick, if you'd start with me here, what is it about term limits that Americans should want? So why should our listeners be interested in the idea of term limits? This has been struck down in the past. Why is this a good idea? What's the benefits uh, from your point of view? Sure. Well, yeah, it, it's been struck down not because it's a bad idea, but because of the legal process we used uh, previously to get it. And a lot of people uh, disagree with how that was decided. But I think there are three big benefits with term limits. Um, it would restore trust in Congress, retire career politicians, and it would really give government back to the people. If you venture outside the 68 square miles of Washington, D.C., what you will encounter is immense frustration with Washington, with politicians, with the status quo. There's disgust and there's resentment with elected officials. People fundamentally feel the system is rigged. And frankly, they're right. Uh, Congress has a 14 percent approval rating and a 98 percent reelection rate. Um, the system is broken. Uh, the power of incumbency has created basically an epidemic of non-competitive elections. Most voters have no functional choice in who they elect to Congress. The power of uh, seniority on Capitol Hill kills the influence of people who think dynamically. There have been 80 members of Congress who've been there 20 years or longer. Five members have been in office 40 years or longer. That is where the power is concentrated with the most senior leaders. So between broken elections, broken seniority system, and the perverse incentives to keep power, we have a system that's just crying out for, for change. And 82% uh, of Americans believe term limits is that change. It's not just the most popular issue in the country. It's also the most bipartisan. It's got support from 76% of Democrats, 83% uh, of independents, and 89% of Republican voters. I want to kind of dig into one of the things you'd commented there, and you were noting that the uh, Congress overall has really horrible approval ratings, which is very, very true. Uh, but as a political science, one of the scientists, one of the things that we know is that while Congress as an institution is very unpopular, individual members of Congress are generally wildly popular inside their own districts. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons they win again and again is their popularity inside of where they're running. So while uh, the, kind of the argument here is that Congress is unpopular, but what about to the individual who say, but I like reelecting my individual. Isn't that my uh, democratic right? I, I've seen this person in office. It's my chance to reelect them again and again. 
Uh, well, it's an interesting question, and I think part of that um, part of that is people who really like their congressman or woman and want to reelect them. Another part of it is just the epidemic of uh, of uncompetitive elections that we have in this country. Over ninety percent of elections for the U.S. House every two years are either uncontested or undercontested, meaning that the incumbent has no challenger at all. Um, my former Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, she hasn't had a, a challenger in a Democratic primary in over 10 years. Um, and that's a Democratic district. It's never going to go Republican. So the Democrats in that district have no functional choice. Even if they wanted to vote her out, um, they couldn't. Uh, so 90 percent. And then the other percent percentage are under contested, meaning someone is running, but it's not a serious candidate. It's a gadfly. It's just put their name on the ballot for fun, maybe raised five thousand dollars. and They're up against a multimillion dollar political machine. So they have no chance. So part of the reason why people continue to retain their own congressman is that they don't have a choice to not do that. Um, second part of it is the seniority problem. You know, I used to live in a district where we had a, a very senior member of Congress and a bunch of local community political activists got together and he said, you know, this guy is really not serving our interests anymore. Why don't we throw him out? And, and the conclusion we came to was, well, we, we can't do that because Washington, D.C. is based on seniority. And if we throw him out, then our district goes all the way to the back of the line. We become number 435 in terms of clout. We lose his position on the Ways and Means Committee. We lose his position on, on other important uh, committees that are vital to our district's interests. So the fact that we have a seniority system in Washington, D.C. creates this perverse incentive to keep your congressman around, even if you don't like him. And this, there's actually been political science on this. I think there's a paper out of uh, Duke University uh, that explored why people continue reelecting their own congressmen, despite the fact they're so frustrated with Congress. And they, they said seniority is also the answer, that they don't want their district to have to hit the reset button and get to the back of the line. Uh, we sent somebody to a town hall meeting in New Hampshire a few days ago to ask Joe Biden about uh, whether he supports term limits. He says, no way, because small states like New Hampshire and Maine and Alaska, they're going to get crushed by this because their districts are going to have to go all the way to the back of the line. What he was really saying is, career politicians have held these states hostage. It's either vote for me or forget about our state having any influence in Washington, D.C. And I think that's just wrong. If you had term limits, one of the first things you'd be able to accomplish is smashing that seniority system and replacing it with more of a merit-based system. Now, one of the places where we do, in fact, see term limits is in the state legislatures. As a matter of fact, in my state here in Oklahoma, um, legislat uh, legislatures are restricted to 12 years, and that's across actually both of the chambers, uh, House and Senate in Oklahoma. Uh, but many in Oklahoma find term limits and turnovers to make governing more difficult. As a matter of fact, uh, a recent book, Term Limits and the Dismantling of State Legislative Professionals, uh, argues on the basis of a lot of uh, um, empirical data uh, that what you lose when you have term limits is professionalism. So what you're calling careerism, is that just another take on professionalism or is are we going to lose something else, this kind of ability to know how to get things done and to make it work? Uh, and that's a kind of a conversation in state. So how do you see that then coming into the national conversation? And would you, would you be worried about the loss of professionalization? You know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, a moment in the 2016 
uh, presidential debates when um, Secretary Clinton was commenting that she had a lot of experience. And then the now president, then candidate Donald Trump said, you have experience, but it's the wrong experience. I don't happen to think that uh, spending 20 to 30 years in the smoke-filled rooms of a state capitol uh, working with lobbyists and bureaucrats is necessarily conducive to the best public policy outcomes. I think people with wide-ranging experience uh, from the private sector, I think getting more legislators who have real-world experience is the key to success in public policy. And um, based on the, the empirical results in states that have term limits, that's what we see. If you look at the Mercatus Center rankings of states by fiscal health, you'll see that the states with term limits are clustered uh, toward the very top. Florida, where I live, uh, was number one, I think, for three consecutive years. Oklahoma is definitely in the top five uh, in terms of having uh, the most fiscally responsible state legislature. And and the states with no term limits, like Illinois, are dead last. Um, states like that, I think Illinois' bond rating was just downgraded to triple B minus, which is the worst in the history of any state. They have $200 billion in unfunded liability. So the career politicians there have totally run the state into the ground. Uh, you can go back and forth. At, I would say term limit supporters are, um, are cognizant of the value of experience. We just think that experience should come from the real world rather than strictly from the political uh, system. Before we kind of change a little bit on this, because there's a lot of things I'd like to ask you, uh, I like that you brought up Trump, uh, because one of the things that many of our listeners and that on the politics guys that we've talked about is that a lot of times outsiders can be more about disruption than they can be actually about governing. There's a there's a large contingent of individuals who would argue that about President Trump. So by having uh, term limits in place, are we encouraging kind of Trumpism outsiderness, or do you think that's just kind of irrelevant to the conversation? No, I don't. I don't necessarily think so. I think by having term limits in place, you are encouraging um, representation um, that really reflects the people of this country. Uh, right now, you know, we have a Congress that doesn't really look like America. It's disproportionately old, white, rich. And male. Um, part of that is you've got so many people who've just held on to the same congressional seats for many decades. Uh, the power of incumbency has created this barrier to entry. And so we can't actually update those districts with newer, younger people who reflect the values of, of today. Term limits, it's it's chiefly, it's not a conservative reform. It's not going to get more Trumps. It's not going to get more Clintons. It's chiefly an elections reform. The idea of term limits is creating an open seat every six years or every eight years that allows for rotation in office. Because when you have an open seat, you get the most competitive elections. You have candidates from a wide variety of backgrounds vying for that office who have an actual chance to win because they're no longer up against an incumbent who's got millions of dollars at their disposal. There was a study done uh, recently by Samantha Petty at the Massachusetts uh, College of Liberal Arts that found states with term limits actually have a much higher rate of uh, emergence for female candidates as opposed to non-term limit states because women have more opportunities to run for office when there are more open seats. As it turns out, women uh, largely as a demographic don't 
don't see their career paths as linear as men do. Women have uh, less proclivity to, to want to be career politicians than men do. So when you introduce term limits, women find elected office a lot more appealing and more of them run empirically. You can demonstrate that more women run when there are term limits. So I think open seats are a good thing for people of all ideologies. I think open seats are a good thing to return politics back to a real intellectual debate of uh, of small government versus big government instead of just letting one incumbent career politician monopolize the process because that's the way it's always been done. Now, but I, I would imagine that a lot of the elections you're talking about, unless we had some radical uh, redesigns of districting, especially in the House of Representatives, we're, what you're really kind of advocating for, it sounds like, is more competitive primaries. There's going to be a lot of districts that they are already Republican, they're already Democratic. Um, but what you're suggesting is that we need to be able to have more inter or intra, excuse me, uh, party competition. So do you really see some of the, like, what you were saying there kind of seemed to be suggesting you were talking about competitiveness between Republicans and Democrats in a way where it sounds to me like more likely empirically that you'd have uh, more robust primaries. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? I think it would actually be both. Uh, and what we've observed is that it is both. Uh, for example, the state of Arkansas passed term limits in 1992, and that state had become progressively uh, less progressive, actually. They had become a more red state, more Republican state. And yet the Democrats had total control of that state legislature until very recently because the term limits hadn't yet kicked in and there had been no open seat race to really test the new demography of the district. Uh, we had a congressional district uh, down here in Florida, in Pinellas County, that was held by Bill Young, I believe, for mm -hmm. 40 years. It was one of the most um, longest serving members of Congress. And we actually did a redistricting in Florida after the last census. His district uh, flipped to become a pretty solidly blue district, but he was still reelected because he had all the name recognition. He had all the money and he was such a well-known figure in that uh, that area. So I think it's both. You get more competitive primaries and more competitive general elections when you have an open seat. And that's a great example. And what I'd like to kind of carry on that is that when you do have these kinds, I mean, one of the things that's going to come along with it is you're going to have an increase in the amount of spending that's necessary because you're not going to have individuals who've been there for a while. Name recognition is going to be a bought commodity. Do you worry that this kind of turnover will result in those with the deepest pockets being the most able to run and win seats? No, I think it's the opposite. I, what you see in open seats is a lot more parity uh, with respect to campaign finance. Uh, right now, um, special interests and the PACs who represent them contribute about $9 to congressional incumbents for every $1 that they contribute to a challenger. Uh, that basically creates a, a deck that is so stacked. You know, serious goal-oriented people are very seldom willing to jump into that gauntlet and challenge a powerful incumbent. What they do is they wait for uh, indictment, retirement, or death uh, to vie for congressional seats. Uh, but that doesn't come about too often due to uh, the tenure problem we see on the Hill. Um, but in an open seat race, you see a lot more balanced campaign finance. There might be more money going in as a whole overall, but 
you have also more candidates. So the money is more evenly distributed. And the cost of winning an open seat in Congress is much lower than the cost of defeating an incumbent. I saw a number the other day. If you have less than a million dollars in your uh, campaign account, your odds of unseating a House incumbent are like two in 292. Your odds are astronomically terrible uh, to try to dethrone an incumbent. But if you buy for an open seat, it costs a lot less and the opportunity is far greater. I think that's why people uh, tend to gravitate towards those seats when they want to participate in public service. Now, as a political scientist, I want to kind of turn the conversation a little bit because one of the things, as I was looking more specifically at U.S. term limits proposals that interested me was the way that you want to attempt to implement them. Um, specifically, you guys want to use a national convention, an Article 5 national convention. Now, there's there's basically, for listeners, there are four methods uh, to uh, changing the U.S. Constitution. Article 5 is the amendment process. Uh, and one of those possibilities that has not been used is the idea that we'd have a new national convention and that they would convene to make recommendations uh, on potentially a narrow or potentially a large uh, set of issues. So one of the things I'm interested in here, Nick, is why the argument for the Article 5 national convention as opposed to the more traditional constitutional amendment process? Well, to, to really understand this, you have to delve into the background a little bit. That was the 1995 case, U.S. term limits uh, v. Thornton, where the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 split decision uh, that states could not unilaterally impose term limits on, on their congressmen. For example, I live in Florida. In 1992, we passed an amendment to the Florida Constitution, uh, which says everyone in our congressional delegation shall have term limits. That was struck down by the Supreme Court, along with similar laws in 22 other states. The silver lining of that Supreme Court decision was they said you, you may still obtain term limits for Congress, but it has to be an amendment to the federal constitution. And as you mentioned, there are two ways of doing that. You can be proposed with a two-thirds vote of Congress, which I refer to as the uh, turkeys voting for Thanksgiving method. Um, or it can be proposed by two-thirds of state legislatures, 34 states, uh, calling for an amendment convention. So U.S. term limits is pursuing both approaches, both the two-thirds vote in Congress and the uh, single-issue amendment convention to put term limits on Congress. So we have a pledge at the federal level asking members of Congress and candidates to co-sponsor and vote for a constitutional amendment that would limit House members to uh, three two-year terms, six years, and senators to two six-year terms, 12 years, and no longer limit. We've got about 80 members of Congress who have signed that pledge, so we've got a long ways to go um, up until we reach two-thirds. Um, but this is a solid block of Congress members who can fight for the right term limits amendment if need be, if Congress ever takes a vote on it um, to make sure the limits are not excessively long. Uh, at the same time, we also have a pledge program for state lawmakers throughout the country um, committing their support to the Article 5 effort to call a convention where states will come together uh, and write a term limits amendment, bypass the swamp in Washington, D.C., and implement it on their own. There's an obvious synergy between these two strategies because every, every time a state um, applies for a convention to put term limits on Congress, that ratchets up the pressure for Congress to do something. Because you know if the states are going to be implementing the amendment on their own, most state legislators want to 
be in Congress someday, uh, but they're blocked by these incumbents. There's an incentive for them to write a retroactive, very short-term limit and to create as many job opportunities as possible in a very short amount of time. So we think what may happen is um, 25 or 30 states may make the call for the convention, and then Congress will see the writing on the wall and propose the amendment on their own. Um, so we're prepared for both possibilities. We're perfectly comfortable with doing an amendment convention if need be, um, but we think ultimately Congress will probably propose the amendment. Now, one of the other things I wanted to kind of push on this, which is, which is interesting, is you could, of course, also instead of taking the amendment to state legislatures for ratification, you could also do ratification conventions called for that purpose in each state. So given, as you, I think, very funnily put it, uh, the turkeys voting for Thanksgiving, what makes you think that state legislatures would be more likely to ratify this than the, uh, the U.S. Congress proposing it? Uh, so why not try to bypass both uh, portions of government as opposed to just one? It's a great question. Um, and I, I personally believe that if you were to ratify it using the state's ratifying conventions, which it, in most states is a direct vote of the people, you put delegates on the ballot here in Florida, for example, as either pro uh amendment or anti-amendment, the people of Florida elect them to a mini convention and then they decide whether they want to ratify it. I think it's only been done once before uh, that way for the repeal of, of prohibition. Um, the reason why I'm not putting my eggs in that basket is that Congress actually has the responsibility of deciding which of those two ratification modes will be used. Um, that when you're going through a convention, Congress has very minimal role uh, per Article 5, but they do have a ministerial duty to select both select the time and place for the convention and to decide which of those two options will be used for ratifying it. And I think Congress is, is more likely to select state legislatures because they think they have a better shot at stopping the amendment using their friends and legislatures as opposed to going directly to the people when they know it's going to be a foregone conclusion. You know, if the people of this country, uh, 82% of whom support term limits for Congress, get a direct vote on it, then the cake is already baked. Now, the one of the big parts of your website that is kind of pushing back against is all the arguments against, kind of the counterpoints for those against term limits. And one of them that you spend a lot of time on in a number of locations is this idea that many skeptics, you argue, have that is that a national convention would end up being a runaway, right? It would take off. It, it's going to undo the system. And I, I don't really want to uh, go down that particular route because I, I, don't, I, I don't have too much disagreement with you there. But one of the things I've often thought about when I'm teaching political science classes and I'm thinking about cost the constitutional uh, process is that our constitutional convention in Philadelphia, it got a lot of privacy in a way that was both unique for that time, but probably even more unique for our own time. And so what I would like to kind of pose to you is, do you think in our current political communication environment, 
that we wouldn't see the negative effects of, say, live streaming, Twitter, and all of these others on a national convention. In other words, the original convention was able to exist in relative peace, uh, whether or not we take that runaway seriously. Would that kind of peace be possible? And if it's not, does that kind of doom a modern national convention? Uh, and what's kind of your response to that, the, the political environment changing the nature of a convention? I, I think that would um, that would certainly apply to some more controversial issues. If you if you were to convene a convention to debate the Second Amendment or to debate uh, abortion, for instance, then it would be very difficult to keep that from becoming a hyper partisan uh, circus. But with respect to term limits, uh, the public support is so high. It is such a unifying issue that bridges the gap between Republicans, Democrats, and independents that I don't think you would see the same type of partisan rancor we see with respect to all these other issues and with respect to our national elections. I think people would be excited about it. I think people would, of all political um, stripes would be saying, Thank God, finally, we've been asking for this for so long. Let's just encourage this body to get its work done and make term limits a reality. You know, we we live stream uh, most of what's going on in Congress through C-SPAN. Now, of course, there aren't a lot of people watching C-SPAN most of the time. But that doesn't mean it's not accessible. And I don't think it's really a hindrance to the process. I think making it more transparent is a good thing. Um, And so I'm actually looking forward to that. I also think that because um, it's state legislatures who get to jumpstart this process and ultimately who get to name the delegates and operate it, that the convention will remain politically responsive. Uh, if, if a state legislator goes to this convention and uh, proposes some wacky idea, that guy's going to get voted out of office in a, in a nanosecond. Um, so I, I think it's politically responsive. I think it will be transparent. And I think people will, will overwhelmingly enjoy the opportunity to um, for, for civic engagement um, and to look at our Constitution, look at the way Congress is structured and make a very important change. And as I take it again, given both the purpose of the organization and what you're doing, the hope here is that the national convention would focus only on term limits, or is there something mildly larger that you would like them to tackle as well to go along with that, or is this just term limits? No, this is uh, strictly term limits. There have been uh, states that have called for a convention that would include term limits in a basket of, of other issues, but that is not the approach we are pursuing. We are asking state legislatures to call a convention uh, exclusively to debate term limits for Congress and no other issue. And in fact, several states actually have something called faithful delegate acts, where if a um, if a delegate is sent to the convention and goes rogue, uh, they can face civil or criminal penalties back home. And in many cases, they immediately get recalled for uh, attempting to veer off the subject matter. Uh, there are so many different safeguards in this process that I'm, I'm not concerned that it would tackle other issues. And the resolutions we pass through state houses and state senates are absolutely clear but this convention is to remain limited to term limits and nothing else. So for any of the listeners who might now be convinced they think this is this is the way to go, or maybe listeners who are already convinced, but they're now really intrigued by U.S. term limits, what could they do to help U.S. term limits on this process? So what would you suggest listeners who have, have bought the idea, what ought they to do? 
Well, if you want to help us take Congress back and restore it to the people, if you want to see competitive elections again, if you want to see real representation in Washington, uh, the way to get involved is go to termlimits.com and sign our petition. We are running a campaign, as I mentioned before, to pass term limits convention resolutions through 34 state legislatures. That means if you're listening to me right now, you're, it's probable that your state is a state we are targeting for passage. And we need a grassroots army. We need to enlist the help of many thousands of volunteers to put pressure on legislators, state legislators and federal legislators to vote for term limits. We are doing events all the time. Um, we are doing canvassing uh, around the country. We are um, doing PR. We're writing letters to the editor. We're writing op-eds. We're testifying on Capitol Hill. We're trying to get the word out about this, but we really do need all hands on deck. So if you go to termlimits.com and sign the petition, that's the best way to get involved. Well, I deeply appreciate you coming on the Politics Guys and answering uh, questions, and I hope this has been a, a fun time, and I've had a lot of fun chatting with you. I have as well, and I would be remiss if I did not mention that we also have a podcast. Um, oh, please US do. Yeah, well, yeah, we had talked about that, but that was off the air, so please give it to us. So, uh, shameless plug, it is called the No Uncertain Terms uh, podcast, and it's basically a weekly update, comes out every Monday morning, weekly update about the happenings within the term limits movement and the specific opportunities to get involved. Uh, and you can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the major podcast platforms. It's called No Uncertain Terms. I really encourage you to check it out. I appreciate that a lot, and I appreciate you chatting with me. Thank you. I want to thank Nick for being on the show, but I also want to thank you, our supporters, for all the things that you do for us. And if you are a supporter, that means that you get a lot of supporters-only benefits, things just for you. Now, if you're a listener and you'd like to find out more about how to become a supporter, I ask that you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can head right to our website and go to politicsguys.com support. If you've got a question or comment, correction, or other random thoughts you might have for myself or Nick or U.S. term limits, and you just want to share it, you can reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you enjoyed the show, I ask that you subscribe or to support it. Nothing more than word of mouth helps with advertising. So please, if you've enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or family member, someone you think they'd appreciate it. Remember, leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use helps as well. I want to thank you all, and I hope you'll join us again on Saturday.